are your stool. I don't know if it's a case of uh, nerves or uh, the antihistamine I took this morning or the nasal spray that I took. Uh, but I'm a little dry this morning, so I want to have my water nearby. Uh, could be nerves. Uh, a couple years ago, I was preaching in uh, Champaign, Illinois. And uh, when I was setting up that engagement with the pastor down there, uh, I asked, how long uh, do I have uh, to preach? He said, oh, take as much time as you need. And uh, I did. I, I preached. <laughs> I preached one hour. <laughs> well, that's not the case this, this Sunday. And in case I forget, uh, there are two clocks up there. There's one on the wall, and there's one right under the first pew here. So plenty of reminders that I need to stop at 10 o'clock. So pray with me uh, that I stop at 10 o'clock. Uh, but before um, Pastor Mike asked me to preach on this Sunday, I'd been asked by a friend of mine who's a pastor of a small church uh, that he planted in Vernon Hills, Illinois, to also preach on this Sunday. So at 11 o'clock, I'll be preaching at New Life Fellowship in uh, Vernon Hills. And that pastor preaches from 50 minutes to an hour every Sunday. So uh, I'll let my hair down, what, what there is of it, uh, at 11 o'clock. So if you want to hear the extended version, just follow me over to... Uh, Vernon Hills. I want to call your attention to our text, which is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews is a wonderful book, and chapter 1 is a wonderful passage, but that's not our text this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given to us to hear from you. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says. And by your spirit, do your work in our lives this morning, in this place. We pray this in your son's name. We want to be so careful to give you all the glory for what you will accomplish. Amen. It's been my increasing conviction that we as Americans right now are, are going through a major shift in our culture. Something that is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. We're going, undergoing a major change. We're changing from uh, a nation where 
Christianity was the most favored religion to one where Christianity is increasingly viewed in a negative way, even hatefully. More and more, we hear complaints from uh, believers in Christ about religious freedoms being limited or denied, and, and I don't think they are necessarily crying wolf. Our society is changing, and in my opinion, not for the better. From the start, though, I, I, I don't want to imply that, you know, this is a sign that the end is near, because from the start of Christianity, Christianity has come under opposition and hostility. Somewhere in the world, Christians have always been uh, persecuted and suffered. Uh, but in America, that's a unique thing. But I, I sense that we're moving in that direction. I don't know how far, I don't know how soon, but I sense that's the direction uh, we're moving. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians. They were possibly converts from Judaism who apparently had experienced and were experiencing some level of hostility, harassment, and persecution from the surrounding Jewish culture. There is also some suggestion in the text that some of these believers were considering defecting from the faith, going back to Judaism, so they could relieve this suffering, this uh, oppression, this, this opposition, this hostility that they were facing. As I said, I think America is possibly headed in that direction. As we as are become more hostile as a society to the Christian faith, I believe temptations increase upon Christians, temptations to respond to the opposition, the hostility we face with our own hostility, temptations to uh, fight fire with fire. They fight us politically, we'll fight politically. They fight us in the courts, we'll fight in the courts. They sue us, we'll sue them. The temptation to let others frighten us into silence concerning what we believe. The temptation to become ashamed of God's word. You know the Bible is not politically correct. You do know Jesus said many things that were controversial in his day let alone our day. Temptations to compromise the moral standard of Scripture. To be sure, when we allow the hostility of others to begin to turn us away from Scripture, that's when we've begun to turn away from the Christian faith. Like these Hebrew Christians, some of them were thinking about turning away from Christ and going back to Judaism. The temptation exists for us to subtly turn away from Christ by turning away from his word, turning away from his teaching. So the writer of the, this letter, whoever he was, we do not know the author of the book of Hebrews, it's, it's anonymous, uh, but it was specifically written to encourage these Christians to persevere under trial. So I think it's very relevant for us. The writer of Hebrews shows us how we may Persevere, how we may remain faithful to Christ until the end, even in the midst of a society that is growing hostile to our faith.
we can learn so much in the book, and I encourage you to read the whole thing. But in our passage here in the 12th chapter, the first three verses, there's a few things I think we can learn that we can benefit from. First thing I see here is that the writer tells us to remember that others have come this way, they have run this race before us, and they completed it successfully. It's right there in the beginning of verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we don't have to go any further. With those opening lines, the writer immediately points us backward with that therefore. You have to find out what that therefore is there for. He's talking about what he just finished talking about in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He tells the believers to whom he is writing that he, along with them, are surrounded by a great cloud, a great gathering, a host of witnesses. What is this cloud of witnesses to which he refers? These witnesses are the Old Testament or Old Covenant followers of God that are listed in chapter 11. Hebrews 11 has been called the hall of faith. Faith, it starts at the beginning. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then he goes on to say how by it the people of old received commendation from God. And he lists various Old Testament believers, starting with Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses. And he goes on to list uh, several others and a host of unnamed others. All these people in chapter 11 of Hebrews are praised for their faith, for their trust in God that they demonstrated in their life. They demonstrate, if you read in, in Hebrews 11, if you, uh, if you have a reference Bible with the cross references in there, it'll point you back to the Old Testament to the specific passages that the writer was thinking about. But if you study these people and, and what they did in their own ways, they trusted God. God said something, they believed what God said. They acted upon that. They acted upon their, tra- their, their faith that God would carry out his word, that he would carry out his promise. And it says about them, they were commended. Verse 2, by it, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 2 of chapter 11. They were commended by God for their faith. In fact, verse 6 of chapter 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. The only way you can please him is to trust him, to trust his word, to trust his promise. And they demonstrated that. Well, chapter 12 follows right after this, after this discussion of these old covenant saints. And it should be seen, chapter 12 should be seen in that context. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these saints listed in chapter 11, the author frames his exhortation as he he enters chapter 12 in in terms of a first century Greco-Roman sporting event, a race. On the running track, he says, are these Hebrew Christians and and himself. And in the grandstands of the the stadium surrounding them is a cloud of witnesses, these believers that he mentioned in in chapter 11. The word translated uh, witnesses in in our English translations can refer either to those who see something, they're spectators, or those who tell something, they're testifiers. That these old covenant witnesses are sitting in the grandstands could suggest that they are spectators watching the Christians 
run their race. However, in this instance, I believe it is better to think of the word witness as referring to a testifier, one who sees, who provides personal testimony or verification. In other words, uh, the emphasis falls on what Christians see in the host of witnesses rather than on what they, the witnesses, see in the Christians. The focus here in chapter 12 is not on the people in the race as he starts, but on the people who are in the stands. What What are they doing? In other words, the suggestion is that these old covenant followers of God, these old covenant followers of Yahweh, are former participants in the very race that they're racing. They've run their race. And now they're sitting in the stands watching those who are currently running the race. In other words, there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Old Covenant believers in God and New Covenant Christians, believers in the Son of God. Both groups follow the same God. Both groups, Old Covenant and and New Covenant, look to the same Messiah. The Old Covenant looked ahead to a Messiah who is to come. Those in the New Covenant, we look backward to a Messiah, a Christ, who did come. We're following the same, believing in, trusting in the same Messiah. And both groups are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah, Christ alone. So there's continuity there. The presence of these witnesses in the grandstands is to encourage the Christians now in the race. Their presence in the grandstands provides testimony or verification that this race of faith, this race of trust in God, can be completed successfully. We've completed the race. We're sitting in the grandstands. You can do it too. You can do it too. You can finish just as we finished. Their life stories testify to the fact that God does not abandon his people. God can be trusted to keep his promises. The cloud of witnesses proclaim by their presence that we made it. We completed the race and you can also make it. And remember, the text tells us that by faith, the people of old received their commendation from God. So we too can be commended by God, receive our, our, our well done from the Father if we finish our race as these saints finish their race. But notice how chapter 12 that we're in, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 11, how that chapter ends, how that chapter ends. In verse 32, beginning there, it says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Triumphs because they trusted God. They triumphed. But that's not the whole story. It goes on from there. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. 
Tradition holds that Isaiah was sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I think the point that the writer is making here to us, to these believers that he's writing to and to us by extension, is that commendation from God doesn't mean everything's going to go well. God will say, well done, because you have trusted me, you've had faith in me. But just because he commends you doesn't mean that the world's going to commend you. Some of these believers succeeded. Others were denounced by the society around them. But God said they were faithful. God commended them. You know, Jesus warned us that hard times could come. Do you remember that? In a few places. One of them is in the book of John, chapter 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus said. So we shouldn't be surprised if our society turns against us. Jesus said as much. The Apostle Paul said, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. The example of these Old Testament saints tell us that many of them face the opposition of the society in which they lived. But in spite of the world's condemnation, these Old Covenant believers were commended because of their faith in God, and we can expect the same commendation if we follow their example of faith and trust in God, finishing this race which we're running. In other words, the commendation of God is far more significant, far more important than the condemnation of the world. Follower of Christ, are you discouraged by how our society is changing? Are you fearful or doubtful about the future? Are you tempted to compromise God's word, to conform to the shifting opinions and mores of, of society in order to avoid conflict and, and disapproval and hostility? This writer tells us we are surrounded by a great cloud, a host of witnesses, believers in the one true God from history back, all the way back to Adam, those who have walked with God. And I would even add, not just Old Covenant, but New Covenant saints, the apostles and, and, and the people we read about in the New Testament and people we read about in church history who finished the race faithful until the end. We're surrounded by these witnesses. And they testify to us that God is faithful. God will not abandon his people. God will not forsake his people. And if we, like them, finish our race, we'll be commended by God. We'll receive his well done. And we can be encouraged by that. That's meant as encouragement. 
But not only should we remember those who have run this race before us, we must, like them, lay aside all that would hinder us running this Christian race. That's also in verse 1. And we must also keep our eye on the clock. Okay, we have to hurry up. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. First thing he says, lay aside every weight. The picture here is of that runner running, preparing for the race. Now, I I know from observation, I don't know from experience, running is just not my thing. You won't catch me running. If you see me running, you better get in a hurry, too, because that means someone's chasing me with a gun (laughs) or a knife. And uh, it means there's danger afoot if you see me running. Uh, But from what I've observed about races, you wear your warm-up suit and and, 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 uh, extra clothing, but you don't run in that. It gets in the way. It'll make you too hot. It'll get tangled up in your legs. And in these days in which the, Roman, the, 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 the writer to the Hebrews was writing in this uh, Roman era, they wore these togas and whatnot. You can't run with all this cloth, all these garments around your legs and, and everything. It, it ties you up. And he's saying, like the racers have to take off, strip off their clothes, strip down to nothing in order that they can run unhindered So we need to lay aside every weight. Now, this does not refer necessarily to things that are wrong. Okay, it's not referring necessarily to sin, but anything that would hinder you from running the race. I found this helpful, this description uh, by Dr. John Piper in a a sermon he preached on this very same text. And I I want to quote him here. Piper says, the race of the Christian life is not fought well or run well by asking, what's wrong with this or that? But asking, is it the way of greater faith and greater love and greater purity and greater courage and greater humility and greater patience and greater self-control? Not, is it a sin, but does it help me run? Is it in the way? Don't ask about your music or your movies or your parties or your habits, what's wrong with it. Ask, does it help me run? Does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? That was very very helpful to me, and it it caused me to do my own self-examination of those things that aren't necessarily wrong in themselves, but they get in the way. And in this, this overly technological society that we live in, we have so many things that can get in our way. We have our iPhones, and we have our tablets, and we have our computers, and we have our our mobile devices and all these things that, that occupy all our time. And we say we don't have enough time to read God's word. We say we don't have enough time to pray. We say we don't have enough time to commune with God. So many distractions, social uh, networking, social media, so many distractions. They're not necessarily wrong. There's nothing inherently evil about them. But do they help you run this race? Do they help you run for Christ? Lay aside, the writer says, every weight. He also says, lay aside sin. He says here, sin that clings so closely. The NIV says, sin that so easily entangles. The old King James Version 
which is the first version I ever read, sin which doth so easily beset us. It's not talking about a particular type of sin. It's talking about the nature of sin. That's what sin does. It'll tangle you up. It'll cling to you closely. It'll, it'll, it'll follow you around. It'll harass you. It'll, it'll hinder you. So he's saying, lay aside all sin. I find it curious that the writer doesn't say anything about the society that the Hebrew Christians lived in. He doesn't say anything to them about what to do about them, those folks out there. His, his whole message in the whole book is about the believers, what you need to do. And he says to the believer, you need to lay aside the weights that hinder your running. You need to lay aside all sin. Now, I'm not saying that we don't combat the, 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 the surge of our society. We see in one place where Paul uh, took his rights as a Roman citizen and, and, and asked to be heard in court as a Roman citizen. We, we have certain rights that we should avail ourselves of. But when those rights are taken away, when they slip away, we shouldn't pull our hair out. We shouldn't fret and worry because God's message has never been about what the world should do, it's always about what his people should do. In this situation, lay aside those things which would hinder you. Thirdly, we must run this race with endurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Two things here. We see that this race is not a sprint. You don't need much endurance to run the 50-yard dash. Even I can run the 50-yard dash, and I won't be too out of breath, maybe a little. You don't need endurance for a sprint, but you need endurance for a marathon. This Christian life is a long-term race. We run to the end. We run to the finish line. Now, our races aren't all the same. Some have short races. Uh, David Brainerd and uh, Robert Murray McShane, they're, they're great Christians from another uh, century. But we still read their works. We still read about them. Both of them died at the age of 29. They had very short lives, but powerful impact. On the other hand, some have long races. George Beverly Shea sang for years for the Billy Graham Crusades and is still living at 104. We have different lengths of races, but we need to endure this marathon until the end. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. And that's why we have to heed these words of the writer of Hebrews. And heed Jesus. Jesus, uh, when telling his parable about the sower of seeds, you might remember that he said, this is Matthew 13, he said the one in this parable, who hears the seed rather falls on rocky ground, that represents the one who hears the word, the word of God, and immediately receives it with joy. Yes, they're happy about the gospel. They join the church. They get involved in the church. Yes, they're excited Christians. Yet he has no root in himself, said Jesus, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Immediately, he falls away. We have to guard against that temptation. When opposition rises from the society around us, the temptation could be 
to quit, to soft-pedal our faith, to, to, to back down, to, to silence it, to not proclaim it as loud. I don't want to make anyone upset. Jesus said immediately, because tribulation and persecution, they fall away. Don't be like that. This is a marathon. You've got to stay in it for the long haul. Secondly, this is not a chosen race, but a given race. It said the race set before us. The race is set before us. We don't choose our race. I didn't choose this race that I've been running. The race that I may have had in mind would have never brought me to Christ Church. I grew up in North Chicago, grew up in Lake County. I never in a million years imagined I would be in Christ Church. I first heard of Christ Church, I think it was 1990. I think they, were, they had just built this, uh, this main building here. And I'm like, oh, there's a new church going up. Oh, oh Christ Church. Oh, very interesting. I never thought I'd be attending here, worshiping here. Never imagined that. I grew up in North Chicago in the black community. Black folks go to black church. I grew up in a historically black denomination. I figured I'd always be in that denomination, always be in the church where I uh, grew up. I mean, I just always counted on black church, black barber, black undertaker. <laughs> I still have the same barber I've had for, for 30 years. We'll have to see what, about the undertaker. But it's, it's, a, it's not our chosen race. It's what God chooses for us. And God may choose for you a way that's hard. He's a good God. Do you trust him? He knows what's best. Do you trust his choice? Paul, the apostle, said in Romans eight twenty eight, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we must run this race with endurance. It's a marathon, and it's a race that God chooses for us. It's the given race, race set before us. But lastly, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Finally, we're in verse 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And let's see if I can run through the rest of this. We see in these verses... That Jesus is our goal. Do you see that? Let us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some uh, versions say uh, the pioneer and perfecter or the author and finisher of our faith. The point is that faith begins with Christ. The Christian faith is centered in Christ. Without Christ, there is no, no faith. It also means he, he is the forerunner. He is the, he is the pioneer. He is the prime example of faith in his life, in his trust of his father when he was here on earth. He entrusted himself totally to his heavenly father, thinking not of himself but what, what is the father's will. So he's the prime example and he is the source 
of our faith. But he's also the finisher or perfecter of our faith. He's the one in whom faith uh, finds its end and faith finds its fulfillment. In other words, in this Christian race, he's the goal line towards which we race. We're running to Jesus. He's coming back again. When he comes back again, when we see him, that's the finish line. That's what we're running for. That's what we're living for. We're living to see Christ. We're not living just to acquire things and acquire money and acquire property and, and, and just enjoy life for ourselves. We're, we're living to this end, to see Jesus when he comes back again, when he sets up his kingdom and to live forever in his kingdom. The book of Revelation tells us that the kingdoms of this world one day will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. We will reign as, with him as his subjects in his eternal kingdom. Now, where that will be, I, I don't know for sure. I have, a, I, I, I have reason from Scripture to suspect it will be here on earth because it says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Things that were will be no more. It'll, everything will be destroyed, as it were, by fire. It will be purified of all the effects and presence of sin. And this will be a new world where righteousness dwells. I, I, I have a... A sneaking suspicion, heaven might be here on the new earth. I don't know. But wherever it is, we'll reign with Christ. He's our goal. He's our example. How he lived, how he faced his death, how he faced the cross. It says he, 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 he endured the cross despising the shame. That word despising means that he regarded it as nothing. The suffering that he went through on the cross, in comparison, it says, to the joy that was set before him, it was as nothing. What was the joy set before him? It was his glorification, his reign with his Father. He rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sits on the right hand of the Father on high. There he reigns until he comes again. That was the joy set before him. In view of the joy, he endured the cross. The cross where he bore the sins of sinners, he who knew no sin. He endured that for the joy set before him. He, he endured the forsaking of his father because he bore sin and somehow the father turned his face from the son. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured that for the joy that was set before him. He is our example. Consider him. Consider attentively what he did, and follow after him. What's the joy set before us? It's when Christ comes again and we'll be glorified. You know, the older I get, the more I look forward to that day. I used to hear the old folks always talking about that, especially my great-grandmother. I was raised by my great-grandmother and great-grandfather. Um, you know, I always used to hear her talk about death and the end and going to heaven, going to be with Jesus. But the closer I, older I get, I'll be 50 my next birthday, I see a little bit of what she meant. Because when Jesus comes, there'll be no more sin. And I'm not thinking about this society, I'm thinking about me. My sins, my difficulty in praying, my difficulty in staying constant in the word, my difficulty in living a life that pleases the Lord, my sin, 
to be freed from my sinful self and to be made like Christ. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the joy that's set before us. And in view of that, the writer says, endure whatever cross it is that the Father sets before you. I don't know where we're headed as a nation. I don't know. I don't think it's good. And maybe that's in our best interest. When I continue reading in chapter 12, uh, the writer goes on to talk about the discipline of the Lord. Maybe that's what the Lord has to do to the American church to, to revive the American church that's grown cold and, and dead and careless and weak and powerless. Maybe he has to put us through the kinds of trials that Christians in other nations have always been going through. Maybe we have to go through that. I don't know. But we trust God. We trust our Savior. With, with our eyes on the prize, we run with endurance this race set before us. It's like that writer, hymn writer said, while we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh, let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory. Will the toils of life repay when we all get to heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Consider him. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you apply your word to each and every heart. You know, Lord, what we need. Some need to consider their lives, what it is they need to lay aside. Others need to consider Christ for the first time. They don't know him. Pray, Lord, that you would reveal Christ to them as the Savior, as Lord, as precious. Draw them to yourself. Lord, whatever it is we need, I pray you'd supply right now. We thank you for what you're going to do. Give your name all the praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>